Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. On today's episode, I'm sitting down with Eddie Zacapa. He's the founder of Life Enriching Communication. He's a certified trainer with the Center for Nonviolent Communication. During 16 years working in the domestic violence field, Eddie developed a year-long court-approved NVC-based batterers program with an amazing 0% recidivism rate after 10 years. No one returned to using violence at home. He still oversees a batterer intervention program through LEC in El Dorado County. He also has facilitated anger management, conflict management, parenting classes, and other workshops on various topics. He's the director of Life Enriching Communication and currently offers life coaching and consulting to individuals, families, and organizations. He uses Life Enriching Communication, aka nonviolent communication, and incorporates this into his workshops and coaching. He currently provides nonviolent communication workshops to the public. In his workshops, he assists individuals in understanding and implementing NVC principles into their daily practice. Eddie works with a variety of clients and organizations, including individuals, couples, school systems, healthcare and social service agencies, workplaces, and religious and spiritual communities. You can find out more about Eddie Zacapa by visiting EZACAPA.com. That's EZACAPA.com. And I'm definitely going to encourage you to check out a copy of the book we'll be talking a lot about on the show, which is Principles and Practices of Nonviolence, 30 Meditations for Practicing Compassion. But without further ado, let's go ahead and get into my interview with Eddie Zacapa. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm so excited to have Eddie Zacapa on the show with me today. Eddie has been working in teaching nonviolence for, what, about 18 years now? And so we're going to have a really good conversation about that. And a lot of times on the show, I'm dealing with survivors of abuse or victims of domestic violence. And it's always interesting to talk to somebody who's working 
a lot of times with offenders and working with people who are on the abuse side. But tell me a little bit about how you got started in this field and what kind of started you down this path of this topic. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, just thank you so much for having me on the podcast. But yeah, it's interesting how I got started. I was working in ministry, actually, with college students. I started a nonprofit and was working in a couple colleges, but I had just gotten married and wasn't able to raise enough funds wanting to think about providing for my family. And so started thinking about a different career. And actually, my mother met someone at her church who said, I think your son should check out the work that I do. And she was doing the domestic violence batter intervention program. And I thought at first, there's no way I'll do that. (laughs) But I thought I'd check it out. And when I did, I just I found these were real people. And they related to me and I was able to share with them and have an impact. And it actually turned into a job for me. And I've been doing it for 18 years since then. So it just happened by by chance in a way. So you've been working in this field, you've been doing, so you you work in a batterers program. And I was shocked because I know with, I I didn't know anything about physical abuse, like a lot of the stats there. I know with sexual abuse, like the whole recidivism rate is very high and it's a whole nother can of worms on its own. But with domestic abuse, the people you've been working with have had a 0% recidivism rate, which kind of blew me away. I'm just curious, like when you're coming into these situations, are you dealing with it when it gets to like the most most extreme version of domestic abuse? Are you catching it very early on where it's a kind of a, almost an intervention? Hey, this is where it's headed. What stage are you usually meeting with somebody? Yeah, it definitely varies. I've had people who almost killed the person that they were with. They were in yeah. a, had one client that the person was in a coma. I had another, other clients that's their first offense but it's Mm -hmm. not really their first offense, you know? Right, first when they got caught. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And then you have some that are definitely just, it's their first relationship or it's first time it's happened in their relationship. So it's kind of good that we're catching it early, so to speak. So it definitely varies, but I think a lot of the clients are not necessarily on the extreme that Mm -hmm. we work with, but we have worked with some that are on the extreme end of the spectrum. Sure. And how do you start that conversation? And I I have to imagine too, there's people that you can work with people that you're going to that initial meeting and go, I don't think this is, this person will be a good fit. Like, how do you determine, because again, this is a conversation where I have a lot of survivors that listen and there's people who've come out of relationships where they're on the abused side. And I, there's a tension there, right? There's the, you don't want to risk if this didn't work or if this person doesn't change, it could have lethal effects on, on a victim. So how do you decide number one, who's eligible for a program like this? And then number two, like, how do you begin that conversation and start really trying to like help them work with them? Yeah. So we do an hour and a half intake. And so that's for them to register into pro- into the program and for us to evaluate if they're ready for the program. Okay. One of the things that I'm looking for is, even though it's the first time I've met with them, that they can own something, that they can accept responsibility, even if it's small, for something mm. that they did that was the using power over someone else, using power and control. Right. And so if I see that they can't really do that uh, at all, even with some help from me, you know, then I'm concerned. And I'll even challenge them and say, I don't know if, if you're ready for this program. Hmm. And there have been some people that I, I've actually told that to. So yeah. and they haven't been able to begin the program. 
but that's one of the things that I'm looking for. And, uh, and I tell them, we're going to, we're going to, a couple of times during the year, we're going to ask you, what was it that you did? And we want you to own it. We want you to accept responsibility for what you did. I also tell them, we're not here to argue with you about whether you're supposed to get this charge or not. We're here to just talk about what you did right. and how it impacted other people. Because sometimes they get caught up in that. Yeah. And, and, and it just doesn't help us because we just want to go right into, okay, what was it that you did that hurt other people? Right. Sure. And then even just initially, I try to help them in the first meeting that they come to our first class. I try to say, think of what you can get out of this program. I know a lot of you are here because the court sent you here. But if that's if you're doing something because you have to do it, you're going to be resentful. You're not going to get the most out of it. So try to get yourself in a place where you can see what can you get out of this? So it's your choice to be here. And uh, it's amazing when that happens that you could totally tell. A lot of the guys, when they graduate, they'll say, this is like the best thing that happened to me. He's all, mm. I, I, I would, you know, never want to do what I did again. But because I did, I got to learn these skills that I learned in this program. So what does the program walk them through? And just really, really going through, I was reading through your book and you're talking a lot about just principles of nonviolence. And it's really fascinating. And there were things I wanted to ask about, but also it's, it really dives into mindset, like how you're identifying situations. And it's something where I think, I think it's, I think it's a book that would be helpful to people before getting into a situation like this. Like it is a mindset thing. And, and I think culturally, even in some religious circles or more traditional circles where you may grow up with severe corporal punishment, or you may grow like you learn a lot of very violent ways of dealing with confrontation or with an argument or disagreement. And I, I think it's amazing. Like even, even in tame situations, how much of that carries over into our day to day life. What are some of the mindsets that you try to work with people to overcome? And what do you think are some of the most damaging mindsets that, that, we tend to generally accept socially. Yeah. So definitely one of the things that we focus on in the program very early on is that they can learn to be compassionate with themselves because if they can't learn to be compassionate with themselves, they're going to have a real hard time being compassionate with others. And so we definitely try to focus on them identifying their feelings and their needs. And so for a lot of men, that's really hard because they've been taught boys don't cry. So if, if they get an injury, they tough it out. They can't show any emotion. So they don't want to show vulnerability. And so that usually the only feeling that's okay to accept is, is anger. And so we try to increase their vocabulary. Mm. And so e- every week we do a check-in where they share three feelings and they connect them to their needs because feelings are always connected to needs. So if you have a pleasant feeling, it's because there's a need that's fulfilled in your life. If you yeah. have an unpleasant feeling, it's because there's something missing in your life. And so as they start to connect there, then we go to that, that next step, which is, okay, what do you think this other person's feeling? How do you think mm-hmm. they felt? And so now that they've expanded their vocabulary, they can start to imagine and start to open their heart towards that person. So that's one of the first things we do. I think that's a, definitely a thread through the whole program. And that's really connected to the nonviolent communication. There's a process there. That's, right. uh, there's four components that we really focus on to kind of drive that through and then to actually help them actually communicate that with other people as well. So, yeah, I don't know if you want me to go through those four components, but that's a big part of our program. I think that makes our program unique is the yeah. nonviolent communication. Yeah. So. 
Yeah, let's definitely go through those. I want to I want to get into one specific section that kind of spoke to me, but yeah, let's go through those four components really quick and kind okay. of break those down. Yeah, so the first one is to just really be able to state the facts, to make an observation, because so many times we do the opposite of that, which is to make an evaluation, a judgment, a label, a diagnosis. And when we do that, we're in a story. And when we're creating this story, we have this assumption, this projection of what we think is happening. And it's usually that there's something that someone's doing to us. And so with the guys that I work with or the women, because we work with women too, they get caught up in that story and then they feel like they're justified in using violence. And so we want them just to look at the facts, like what happened? What did this person do that triggered you? And then after we do that, we want them to share their feelings. And a lot of times when we share our feelings, we don't share feelings. We say things like, I feel or I feel that. And we follow it up with, I feel like you don't care. I feel that you're selfish. That's not really a feeling. So we get them to really share feelings because uh, a lot of times we use that phrase, I feel like, to just blame someone else for our feelings. And so with nonviolent communication, we accept 100% a responsibility for our feelings. So we finish that with, I feel that, I feel frustrated, say, because I need respect or I need um, to be heard. So it's, that's why you're feeling that, not because someone else is doing something. So that's pretty powerful. And then for them to follow it up with making a request either of themselves or someone else and for it to be a very specific doable request instead of a demand. And, and a lot of times they're used to just telling people what to do, but to really be mindful that you want to honor this other person and give them a sense of choice. Because if they're doing, if they're saying yes to you and they don't really mean it, you're going to pay for it later on. There's mm-hmm. going to be resentment. So you really want to make sure you're finding solutions that work for everybody. So that kind of sets them up when they start to interact with their partner or their kids to be able to communicate what's in their heart and to do it in a way where they're honoring their partner too and okay with hearing no. Yeah, definitely. No, I think one of the, one of the sections of your book that I thought was really good is when you talked about power over and power with, and I think it really, that was one of those moments where I was like, oh, that cuts to the heart of so many of these situations is that you can use power being involving the ability to use resources available to meet your needs, power over to intimidate other people to, who can't make the decision equally with you and then power with using our resources to work with others. And I thought that really broke down like how it should work is like the power with kind of method. But then on the flip side, and, and this is what I was curious to to talk about, because I was reading your book and thinking, okay, from the perspective of somebody who's struggling, especially with men, you know, I just read the book Mask of Masculinity um, by Lewis Howes and uh, it covers a lot of the same territory. I'm like, this is really good if someone takes this and internalizes this, like for uh, especially men, because a lot of domestic abuse cases, yes, there's women, but a lot of times it is men because of just social status or physical strength or size, things like that. It just tends to tip that way. But I, I am curious too, for someone who, for someone who's reading this, who maybe is on the side of okay, they're the victim or the person being hurt by somebody, a lot of this language gets used by people who are the abuser. Like you need to take responsibility for yourself, or you need to look at what you're doing or how that's making me feel. Like all of those kinds of things. So, do you, do you feel like there's some kind of, I guess roadblock there, some kind of thing where someone could be interpreting this, someone with a very narcissistic abusive personality and just laying this all out on the person that they're abusing instead of applying it to themselves. 
So yeah, that's one of the things that we're concerned about because they could get really good at using strategies, yeah. even power with type strategies. It looks like they're power with strategies to just get what they want. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we're really stressing is if you're using this just to get what you want, you missed the point. So this has got to be, you got to care about the other person's needs just as much as you care about yours. Mm -hmm. And so we do a lot of role playing in the program as well. And we, to see if there is that sincerity, to see how it would land on the other person. And so that really helps us evaluate too, if they're ready to graduate. Is this person really thinking about their partner, their kids, or are they just using this to try to get what they want? So it's right. definitely like something we're looking out for. for sure. Sure. Mm -hmm. sure. And I'm curious too, because I know like, obviously it, it seems the program's effective. What kind of check-in process are you doing once they're put back into a home situation, if they're put back in, I'm, I'm assuming at this point, there's a lot of times where that's not even an option, but in the cases that they are, is it just following up and keeping accountable kind of stuff or how does that work? Yeah. So one of the things that we do is we allow the guys um, to come back to the group for free for life, as long as they don't get reoffended and, and come here because they're sent by the court, but they can come to get a tune up. They can come. Some of them have opportunity to help other people. So we've had some people go through our program and actually become like a facilitator or a volunteer and work with people. So that's a great way for them to stay connected and be reminded of the things that they are learning and living out in their life. And then also we do an exit interview and we ask them, what are you going to do to maintain this lifestyle, this new lifestyle of nonviolence? And so we make sure that they have a plan going on, going forward. Uh, of what they're going to do specifically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So for the other end of this, you talk a lot about like forgiveness and obviously removing some expectations of others, which again, it's like the idea of being at cause, right? Like it, the idea that we're responsible for emotions, which can be a very good thing to practice, but can also become something that can be very traumatizing or very harmful. If again, if it's being utilized as a weapon, like mm -hmm. you need to be at cause. If you're upset that I did this, it's because of you, not because of me. Like that can be a very mm -hmm. negative thing. But I'm curious from a healthy standpoint, how can you, how can someone who's been on the receiving end of a lot of abuse offer forgiveness or at least let go of the control that situation has over them without being re-traumatized or putting themselves in a position where they could be harmed or victimized again, whether mentally or physically? Yeah. So I think the key thing is really defining what forgiveness is, because I think people mm. have so many different definitions of it. And one thing is that forgiveness does not equal reconciliation. Mm. So it's not the same thing. And so you don't have to ever talk to this person again if you don't want to. So forgiveness is about setting yourself free from resentment, right? So that you can move on in your life. It's about mourning what happened and grieving that and then letting go. And so that way you're not carrying it. And every time you think about that person, you're not feeling stressed or anxious or worried or angry or resentful. You're able mm -hmm. to move on with your life. So it's a very, it's actually something that I would say is very therapeutic to be able to go through that forgiveness process. Yeah. Yeah. It, it kind of ties in. You, you talk about the idea of the response we kind of default to when we're in a situation like that is to rebel or to submit. Like you, you break those two things down. I thought it was interesting. And I, I sat and thought about it for a, a little bit because in, in a lot of ways, I, I think of myself as a rebel in some ways. There's mm -hmm. this, there's something very atrocious happening and I'm going to speak out against it. You give examples of say like a Martin Luther King Jr. who like, I would have 
prior to reading and I'm still thinking through it, I would say, oh, he's, he was a total rebel. Like he fought the system, but can you explain like you said, there's a third option beside rebelling, besides submitting. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, because initially when I read it, just completely honest, I would read it. I was like, that's not true. I was like, that's pretty much what you have to do is you have to either do this or this, but, but can you break down that third option and kind of explain, because it was when you use the example of Martin Luther King Jr. that I was like, oh, I think he's onto something. There's something there. So I think when we submit, basically what we're doing is we're giving in, we're giving up, which is, so we don't want to do that. And when we rebel, what we're doing is a lot of times we're being motivated by anger. So we Mm -hmm. don't show up in the world in the best way. And sometimes we sabotage our efforts. And so when we see with Martin Luther King is that he was so laser focused on what he wanted to accomplish. And he was so determined, but he was willing to do it without compromising love. That was his main motivator was we are going to do this in love our opponent our you know enemy or whatever you want to call it we're going to love them and so he was willing even to suffer for the cause and but he was always in choice he didn't submit he didn't give up and he didn't give away his power by being reactive Mm -hmm. instead he, he was able to just stay laser focused and be creative in his approach and then of course being motivated by what he called soul force that's what kind of hit me was like the reactive thing. Cause it, it, again, I think anger can be a good thing to motivate action. When I think that there's a, there's, especially with my show, when I'm dealing with, with child abuse or sex mm-hmm. abuse and things like that, like I think anger will always play some factor in motivation. And I think that's like, that can be a good thing. But when you mentioned being reactive, I think it comes down to it. It's really, it's, it's whether you're submitting or rebelling, they're controlling what you're doing. And I think it's something I've seen a lot as I've done the show is I have people reach out who are like, oh, you need to, you should have been more, more offensive with your language toward this person, or you should have just blasted them on on your show, or you should have posted this, or you should. And, and sometimes rightfully so, sometimes I think you have to shed a really bright spotlight, obviously, on some of these things. But also, I've come to realize there's a lot of people who are on the abuser side who want to generate that reaction. And especially when you're dealing with organizations, the best thing I've told people, the best thing that could happen for them is for me to look like a loose cannon who's just firing away at everything. There's plenty of things that make me upset, plenty of things that need to be addressed. But I feel like if you can be methodical and just be, again, laser focused on that goal, it's going to make you look a lot more credible. It may not change their mind because there are some people I don't think they're going to change their mind. But for people who are watching from the sidelines, if I deal with a lot of churches, if I'm just blasting a pastor over every little thing, mm-hmm. like someone in the congregation who might be on the fringe and would be willing to leave or willing to get out of that situation might say, oh, he has no credibility now. He has no right to talk about this because look how he acts. He acts the same way. And it it frightens me because I see a lot of people leave abusive situations and their response to it is to go to the same abusive rhetoric and language or even violence in some cases. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, I think that, again, that same thing where if someone can say something to set you off, they're still controlling you in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Instead of it being something where you can say, I know clearly laying out the facts, that's incorrect. And here's why. And that's such a powerful position to come from. And that's what I, I think that consistency helps that credibility quite a bit. But I, I thought it was really interesting because yeah, when I read it, I was like, oh. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I respectfully disagree. And then reading online, because Martin Luther King Jr. did things that 
aggravated. He did things that were very, he broke some rules when he, when it came to some of his protests, but he was never out screaming at people or resorting to physical violence. And I think that added a lot of credibility to, to his messaging. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I know I always go back to Gandhi's quote. He says, no one can hurt me without my permission. And so just to remember that a lot of times we go there to where we take it personally. But if we can remember that hurt people, then we don't have to let it get to us and we can still be in our power. We can still respond to the moment in in a way that we can feel proud. Yeah, it's really interesting. And it is. It's one of those things I just read through. I was like, there's a lot of it's just unfortunate. I think it's unfortunate. (laughs) That was my takeaway. It's unfortunate that so much of this language has been used by abusers and such like, again, being at cause, like, I think that's such a powerful tool. And that was something someone had told me like a year ago, Hey, don't be, you control whether you get upset about it or you control whether you get hurt by it. And that's a really good thing. And then we look at, we were watching the the vow on HBO. We were watching the next about Nexium. And that was one of their core teachings was like, you control whether you're upset. So if something I do upsets you, and it's one of those things where like, this really works if all parties are trying to do this. And I think that's where, I think that's where this is a really useful tool for anybody is that if one party is understanding like that they're trying to use power negatively and the other side is understanding, okay, they're, they're obviously compensating for something or they're doing, you know what I mean? There's, it just, it makes you long for an ideal world where both parties are going to be acting in this way. And it's such a shame that for whatever reason, this messaging is lost on most people just growing up. And I think about it, like there's things in there that I, I'm not physically abusive, but there's things where I've exerted control where I don't need to, or there's been times where I've needed to be more understanding or ask instead of tell, like all that kind of stuff. But it doesn't feel like it's something that you're formally taught growing up. And it feels like that would have been a useful kind of life skill to develop. Um, Yeah, definitely. I know a lot of the guys will will say we should have been taught this in school. Yeah. When we were younger, we got to teach it to the kids. And then I totally agree with you. It's so important to work with both parties. At the agency that I worked at, it was originally a woman's center, and then they changed their name to the Center for Violence-Free Relationships. And so they had they were serving both survivors and men and women who had committed acts of violence. And so I was able to train a lot of the counselors in nonviolent communication. And so we were both speaking the same language. And a lot of times they were setting boundaries, the survivors were. And if if you want us to work on this relationship, then you've got to take this class. And so we got some clients that way who weren't in the system yet, who came and voluntarily took the class or because they were nudged by their partner. But having that, working with both parties is really important. I'm curious about the female offender side because you don't hear about that often. How is that usually, what percent would you say is female? And then how does that usually play out? Is it generally physical violence? Is it like, because again, it's stereotypes. You think of Mm -hmm. just a big burly drunk guy, but how has that played out? And how is it usually different when you've got a, a female abuser versus a male abuser? Yeah. When I was doing working full-time in this uh, work, we had about seven groups in uh, who were all men. Okay. And then we had one group that was women. So that kind of gives shows you a little bit like the difference in how many yeah. cases maybe were in the county. And then I think the big difference working with the women 
was that a lot of them had been abused or been through domestic violence at some point in their life. And some of them in that relationship and some of them maybe a prior relationship. So then they were, they, there was a lot of pain. And so maybe out of that came wanting to have some power back and then using power over strategies. Do, do you think most recognize it's abusive or do you, cause, cause I, I, I think back to, we had a guest speaker that would always come to our church when I was a kid and he would always talk about corporal punishment and talk about, he said his dad was very, essentially described very abusive situations. Like my dad would throw me around the room and he, I remember him saying very clearly, my, I'm not saying it's okay, but my dad threw me through walls and I turned out all right. Like he would make statements kind of offhand like that. And it's lots of abuse, but he just took it and interpreted it as normal behavior. And I, I think sexual abuse is a very different animal in the sense of a lot of people are sexually abused, won't ever sexually abuse because they understand very clearly how that feels. Like there's been a lot of studies on that. And that was a misconception for a long time is that those who rape or molest were probably raped or molest. That's not very, that's not very common, but with, it seems like with domestic violence and physical abuse, it does seem to be generational. Like it, it seems like it's very hard to break that cycle. Why do you think physical violence is interpreted so differently than say, and, and even emotional violence is interpreted so differently than sexual violence is. Yeah, I think it has to do with society. So I think it's been historically more accepted. Hmm. And sometimes it's considered, oh, that's old school parenting or something right. like that. And a lot of times parents will actually tell their children that this is your fault. This is why we did that to you. And so I think a lot of times we internalize that. And we say, well, I probably deserved it. I was pretty much, I, I, I did so many bad things. And so I think then we justify it right. for, for our parents. And, and our parents are people we care about. So we don't want to see them as, as bad, right? Yeah. So I think that kind of plays into it. Well, and then we justify it doing it to the next person because mm -hmm. you deserve mm -hmm. it. So we use all that same vocabulary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you hit on this earlier, but it, it, parents even brings up, it brings up a good point. But like, how do you set a healthy boundary between obviously understanding very much like parents become a very tricky thing because you've got uh, all of your good memories, all of your bad memories. You've got some things that are maybe abusive physically or mentally, or maybe they scream constantly or whatever that was. So how do you work on building that relationship, but also maintain boundaries and, and try to educate them on like how it affected you or, or how it impacted you? I actually have that experience. I grew up in a home with one parent that was, I guess you could say, uh, abusive, used the power over strategies, right? We were afraid of that parent. They chased us around the house with a wooden spoon or whatnot. So when I started parenting, I made a very clear decision that I wasn't going to do that. I didn't want a parent from fear. I wanted to have a relationship with my child and I wanted to discipline them, meaning teaching them. Discipline is focusing on the future and um, punishment is focusing on the past and trying to give somebody what you think they deserve for what they did in the past. Mm. And so as I was doing this and I was modeling this, I'm sure I was getting criticism from my parent. <laughs> and it was an opportunity for me to show her a different way. And that was, I think, powerful, but it wasn't easy. There were times where we disagreed. There were times where we argued about it. Sure. But in the end, I think this person was able to see that there's another way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I like that. Discipline's focused on the future. Punishment's focused on the past. It's a very, again, I think parenting is where you start seeing all those things that you've internalized or learned and they just start because you default to 
whatever that is. Like there's like, we talked early on and we're like talking about spanking was, is spanking Cause, cause growing up, it was very common. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. and I think still, yes, legally things have changed a little bit, but I think still the conversation with most people I talk to is like, oh yeah, of course we spank. Like, I feel like that's most people you talk to. It's of course, if they are doing something really bad, of course we do. And I'm sure there's people listening that have all kinds of variations of of what they think is acceptable, but I've just read too many studies and seen too many things where I'm like, it makes me really uncomfortable. But it it is one of those things where as a parent, when you're worn down to the end and you're going, what do we do? How do we deal with this? Like, your first instinct that kicks in is whatever you were raised with. And my wife and I talk about all the time is like, you you have to like actively fight what's been imprinted on you through all of your experiences. And when it's three in the morning and your kid's like acting crazy, like mm-hmm. you have to constant, like constantly make an effort to try to be focused on discipline and be focused on, okay, what I'm doing right now is what's going to be affecting them in 10 years. So there's a lot of pressure there. And it really is. It's just, it's just a very interesting thing that comes out. Same with marriage too. There's a lot of issues that rise to the surface when you're, when you're raised a certain way, or when you saw your parents behave a certain way. And, and so I'm always fascinated kind of reading things that focus on that mindset stuff because it's Mm -hmm. a constant fight, but yeah, I'm curious what that looks like. Like when you're working through these situations, obviously at the point you're at that warning sign danger mode, it's a little too late to be thinking about it. So what are some ways to constantly refresh your mind or renew your mind and think about like how you address these kind of situations? Like before you get into the, my, my veins are bulging and I'm angry and I'm upset. Like, how do you train your mind to start thinking differently than what your parents taught or what kind of society has taught you to do? For sure, because that's even if we have all the tools, right, that we teach in our program or, or whatnot, or we got some good skills that we have, the, the thing that we run into the most is in that moment, we forget. Mm. And so I think one of the things that helps me the most, and I, I share this with everybody, is that try to focus on where you feel that tension or that anxiety in your body. Because so many times, and it might be a dry mouth, it might be your heart, it might be your shoulders get tight. But try to figure out where you feel that, because that could be what can help you remember, right? In Mm. that moment, like you feel it somewhere and you're like, oh, I got to get out of here. I got to take a time out. I got to take a walk. And I found that's the fastest way. There's other cues that you can focus on as well. But that to me has been the most helpful. And then just really talking with other people in your household and saying, I'm going to be practicing timeouts. And sometimes those people can hold you accountable and say, hey, dad, you need a timeout. And so it's like, oh, okay. And then for me, also having a behavioral cue that I was like, if I ever do this, I need to take a timeout. For me, Mm -hmm. raising my voice. So once I raise my voice, I'm like, nothing good's going to come anymore. So I'm taking a timeout. Right. Yeah, no, I appreciate that section where you talk about the reset, taking a breath. Mm -hmm. And that's something for me that I've started doing, not just for for anchor, you know, but for even there's times I get like anxious, you know, or overwhelmed. And I think it's the same principle, right? Like when you start losing control and your body starts getting power over you, like it's time to take a, take, like you said, a timeout. And so that's something it was one, it was one of those things I was, I was sitting down and talking with a trauma therapist and working through just, just chatting through some of these things. And, you know, it, I was talking about doing the show. I said, I'm dealing with people who've been victims of horrific stuff. And I said, it's overwhelming. And I, sometimes you get off the phone and then it hits you like everything you just talked about. Mm-hmm. And they were like, do you go on 
do you ever take a break and go on a walk or something? And I was like, no, <laughs> so I just do go to my next call. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those things where it was like, someone went to years and years of school and tons of licenses and degrees to say something so simple, mm-hmm. but that was a game changer for me was, okay, now I have time allotted in between interviews to go for a walk. Like I'll take my daughter or I'll go by myself and we'll go for a walk and just go look around and just get fresh air. And then I come back and I'm fine. And that's that little step has changed a lot of the trajectory, like mentally for me throughout my day and how I address these things. It's the same thing. Like when you get into so many of these things that reach a bowling point, whether it's anxiety temper, all that, it can be solved by just stepping away and, Mm -hmm. and consciously trying to identify what am I feeling right now? Because mm-hmm. everybody has that moment after it explodes where they say, oh, I regret that. I, I never think like that. I didn't mean that. And that's probably true. You probably didn't mean it. You probably didn't feel that. But the more you let yourself lose control to it, the the, the quicker you're going to start doing all those things you regret. And yeah, taking time, I, I think you said it's like four seconds to just mm-hmm. take a breath, focus on your breathing. And it's mm-hmm. true. It's like in that split second, you can take care of whatever that is and then go back to your normal kind of program. But yeah, I, th- I think that's super vital. And I know that from experience, like not from the, the domestic abuse side, but from the depression or anxiety and like all that kind of thing, it's invaluable. It's a huge tool. But yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's really good. And there's a lot of different directions to go with that. But I am, again, curious, I I just keep cycling really back to the side of someone who's in a situation like this. We talked a little bit about boundaries. We talked about identifying this, like at what point, at what point do you say, Hey, this person is, is not changing. Like at what point do you consider, I don't want to use the word lost cause, but I guess that's the, and I know it probably in your field of work, it's probably not a term you'd like to use loosely, but I just, I, I, I always wrestle with this because I'm on the side of I'll give people a million chances and get run over like 6,000 times and keep going. Okay. It's a walk through what it is. We'll talk about it. I feel like it's going to change and then get hit with it again. And so I guess for someone who's trying to identify, is someone safe to let back in my life? Is there, is someone really changing? Maybe they're not going to be a romantic partner, but are we going to stay in contact or are we going to co-parent or are we going to, whatever the situation is, when does someone say, okay, they're not going to change and I need to cut them off versus, okay, I need to set healthy barriers and we'll work through this. When do you make that distinction? Yeah. So I think one of the things that's really important is for people to be able to figure out what needs of theirs are not being fulfilled in the relationship. Mm. So sometimes we don't have clarity about that. So we might put up with abuse. But once we realize that our safety is being compromised, our children's safety is being compromised, the trust, the wanting to be heard, wanting to matter, wanting to to share decision-making, things that are really important to us. And if we keep seeing that none of these needs are being fulfilled after all our efforts, after saying, hey, can you go and sign up for this class? And that person's not willing to do that. So then you have clarity. It reveals to you what you're dealing with. Mm, And you're able to see it for what it is. And then you say, okay, I've given this person opportunities. There's certain things I definitely cannot risk. Safety is is number one. So if if you or your kids are in danger, get out first. And then I did. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that clarity is what kind of helps you. I I even was there. So I I was in a relationship that wasn't healthy and I had to go through that. And after repeated efforts, just not seeing that the relationship was going to be sustainable long term. 
and the impact that it was gonna it was already having on me and my children it was time for me to say okay this it's time for me to start setting boundaries and focusing on myself being healthy that's really good. Yeah. And, and that's something I want to make sure to say too, is I think, again, when this language gets weaponized, like people can be like, oh, don't try to separate, don't try to set a boundary. Like we need to just work on it. And I think it's really good just to say, if you're in a situation like this, get out first and then identify the issue and address it immediately. And yeah. uh, I, I think that's really important. So yeah, and, it, and it's really important to have a safety plan. So mm call your domestic violence center. You know that there's 24-hour centers. Call your local domestic violence center. They usually have a 24-hour hotline. Talk to a counselor. They can help you get that safety plan. Yeah. Right? Because sometimes abuse gets worse when you try to leave. Yeah. So it's just important to be aware of that. But have a plan. Have people who can help you if you right. make that decision. Yeah. And I guess I'm going to close on this, but I'm curious for those who are on the outside of these situations and are working with someone who's being hurt or with someone who they know is being toxic, whether physically or emotionally. I think a lot of times emotionally, people are very abusive, if not physically. How can you help someone facilitate that, help someone develop their safety plan, help somebody who like, without escalating the situation, like how can someone from the outside speak into one of these situations and actually be helpful? So I think the first thing is just listen. So that it just be fully present. And sometimes when we hear somebody who's going through something that's heartbreaking, we want to try to fix it. You want to tell them what to do. You just need to do this. You need to do that. And that's not what they need in that moment. They just mm. need someone that they can talk to, someone that they feel can really hear them and, tr and that they can trust. Mm. And once they get that out, maybe even try to reflect it back to them because that gives them validation. Yeah. And so many times it's hard to find someone that can give you that. So I think that's the starting place. And then after that, saying, hey, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to consider this, right? Sure. And accepting if they say no, that just means they're not ready. You don't want to pressure them or coerce them into doing something that they, they're not ready to do. Right. But, yeah. It's like an addiction or weight loss or, or, or health changes or quitting smoking or whatever that is. If you're not ready to make the change and in the wanting to make the change, you're probably not going to make the change. Like no matter what gets recommended or what regimen someone puts you on, if you're not mentally going to want to make that change, it's not going to happen. And uh, but yeah, I think that's really helpful for, for someone who's curious about what you do or wants to connect with you. Uh, what's the best place to, to connect with you or find some more resources? Yeah. So I would say they could check out my website, which is isacapa.com. So it has a lot of information on the work that I've been doing in domestic violence. And then I also have a blog that's uh, harmonyoftheheart.com. Yeah. So awesome. that's a blog too. And then I have a new website called Peace, Love, and Nonviolence, which is connected to the book and just promoting peace, love, and nonviolence in any way that we can. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Everybody check that out. I'll put links to all those in the show notes. But um, Eddie, thank you so much for taking some time to, to talk through this. And I hope some people will check out the resources you just mentioned. Oh, thank you for having me on your show. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.